We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Stender, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. To share your thoughts about this podcast or others, please visit facebook.com slash jcastnetwork. This morning I wanted to share with you a story that I learned when I was in Guatemala. It's a true story of a boy named Marco Antonio Molina Thiessen. I learned about Marco Antonio from a group of independent journalists called Prensa Comunidad, who work to expose government corruption and abuse in Central America. The story haunted me. I think because I saw in Marco Antonio a reflection of my own children. He loved to draw and write so much that even when he couldn't find a pencil or paper, He would draw pictures with his finger in the air. He loved soccer, skateboarding, biking, and what really nailed me, he loved Star Wars. This is Marco Antonio's story. When he was about bar mitzvah age, Marco Antonio's older sister, Emma Guadalupe, became involved in student-led protests for democratic reforms and human rights. One day, she was kidnapped outside of her school by members of the Guatemalan army, presumably as a punishment for her activism. They took her to a military zone in the province of Quetzaltenango, where one of the places where I was, where she was repeatedly tortured and raped. Despite this, after nine days, after nine days of horror, she managed to escape and return home. The army set up an intelligence operation to find Emma Guadalupe. Three agents entered the family's house, and when they couldn't find her, they took Marco Antonio while his mother looked on. He was never heard from again. He was disappeared. He was 14 years old. Before traveling to Guatemala with American Jewish World Service, I had never heard the terms to be disappeared or to disappear someone. It was a usage of the the verb to disappear that I had simply never encountered. In Guatemala, meeting with human rights advocates and victims of state-sponsored abuses, I heard those terms repeatedly. It turns out that to be disappeared or to disappear someone is a common term in the world of human rights, although the more proper term is an enforced disappearance. In international human rights law, an enforced disappearance is the secret abduction of an individual by the state or its agents. To disappear someone is to make someone vanish without a trace, to take them indefinitely and tell no one about where they were taken and what has happened to them. It's different than kidnapping someone 
or even imprisoning or murdering them. In those circumstances, the status of the person apprehended or the victim is generally known. When someone is disappeared, the objective is the uncertainty. The point is for the victim to go missing and for no one to know what has happened. Guatemala has a history of extrajudicial forced disappearances. Rooted in the Guatemalan internal arms conflict, which took place between 1960 and 1996. Forced disappearances were a deliberate and systematic government strategy during that period, designed to psychologically torture and terrorize segments of the population into submission. As of 2013, there are 45,000 people who were documented as disappeared during the conflict era. And given the fact that many conflict-era war criminals still populate Guatemala's ruling class, and that corruption and repression is widespread, the tactic continues, often with impunity, to this day. Marco Antonio is one of those 45,000 disappeared Guatemalans. And still today, nearly 40 years after his disappearance, and over 20 years since the end of the Civil War, his family has never been told what has happened to him, and no one involved in his disappearance has even been charged with a crime, much less brought to justice. Justice is the indisputable theme of this week's parsha, Mishpatim. For instance, our parsha demands the death penalty for the perpetrators of crimes like the forced disappearance of Marco Antonio. He who kidnaps a man, the Torah says, whether he has sold him or is still holding him, shall be put to death. That law is but one of the many expressions of the famous biblical perception of justice made famous in our parsha. you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Now contemporary commentators sometimes criticize this biblical approach to justice as brutal, as violent, and unnecessarily harsh. It's noteworthy, I think, that much of this criticism comes from scholars influenced by the Christian tradition. And in the New Testament, Jesus famously advises against proportionate retaliation, adjuring his followers instead to turn the other cheek. The rabbinic tradition, too, was somewhat uncomfortable with the practical application of this biblical law of retaliation, substituting where they could monetary damages an eye for the monetary equivalent of an eye, a foot for the monetary equivalent of a foot, and so forth. And yet, while the rabbis may have been squeamish about actually cutting off the hand of a violent perpetrator, and while they correctly pointed out that in effect, even if not in intent, this, kind, this type of retaliatory justice can unintentionally result in unjust consequences, they did not challenge the basic moral assertion embedded in that biblical teaching. What is that basic moral message? To answer that question, I think we have to go back in time a bit. Before the Bible, the most prominent and widely followed legal apparatus in the world was the Code of Hammurabi, which was promulgated in Babylonia in 1761 BCE, some five centuries before Sinai. Hammurabi's code is strikingly similar to biblical law codes like the one outlined in our parsha. 
with one fundamental difference. In his version of the law of retaliation, Hammurabi distinguishes between people of different social strata. The punishment is an eye for an eye only when a man strikes his socioeconomic equal. If a high-born man injures a peasant, he receives a lesser punishment than a peasant would have received for striking him. In other words, while Hammurabi enshrined a code of justice by means of retribution and compensation, he simultaneously reinforced a system of social inequality in which some people are more important than others, in which some lives are more valuable than others. The Torah is a direct rebellion against this worldview. It cleverly bases its legal system on the familiar form and language of the Code of Hammurabi, and at the same time creates a social order that refutes the basic premise of Hammurabi's Code. Where the Code of Hammurabi says some lives matter more than others, the Torah responds that all lives have equal value, that everyone must be treated as equals under the law. The life of a noble and the life of a peasant legally speaking, have equal value. Their eyes have the same value, their hands have the same value, their feet have the same value, their bodily integrity and dignity are equally worthy. Astonishingly for its time, the Torah even goes so far as to extend this equality of status to slaves and foreigners, people who otherwise in the ancient world would have never been considered social equals with free men and citizens. Yet the Torah says, you shall have one law for stranger and citizen alike, that the, foreign, that the foreigner is to be considered legally equal to the native born, and even goes so far as to enshrine special protections to the alien, twice in our parasha alone, to ensure their fair treatment. You shall not oppress a stranger, it says, for you know the feelings of a stranger, having yourselves been strangers in the land of Egypt. It's why the Torah begins with the narrative of the creation of the world and the first human beings, rather than simply with the first commandments relevant to the Israelites, in order to remind us that we all come from a single origin, that we all come from a common parent, and that therefore there is no inherent human hierarchy. It's why the Torah frames its legal code, the very one we are given in this week's parasha, against the backdrop of the Exodus to remind us that Egypt, a society founded upon the ideal that some people mattered more than others, that Egyptians mattered more than Hebrews, that firstborn children mattered more than their siblings, and that pharaohs mattered more than anyone, represents the antithesis of the society that biblical law would strive to create. Of course, we might and should argue today that the Torah was not revolutionary enough. If it wanted to argue for human equality, it should have abolished slavery altogether. That it did not is a great stain, I think, on our tradition, and the source of one of history's cruelest ironies, that millions of people throughout the centuries were kept in bondage with the implied permission of a tradition instituted by people who themselves had cast off the yoke of slavery. But given the ubiquity of slavery in the ancient world, Indeed, given the fact that even our thoroughly modern and enlightened ancestors here in the United States 
failed to end slavery until the middle of the 19th century. And even then, only after a devastating war forced their hand. And that we still today perpetrate forms of slavery by other names within, for example, our criminal justice system. I'm willing to judge my Bronze Age ancestors charitably and say that given the entrenched norms of their time, the, the biblical model, even though it retained some limited forms of slavery, was still a revolution of values in its time and advances a core principle that we have yet to fully realize even in our time. The Torah founds its conception of justice on the premise that all human beings have equal value. And thus it calls out to us in every place and in every age to advance societies in which all people are considered and treated as equals, in which no life is treated as more precious than another, and in which no life is treated as less worthy than another. When I reflected on what I witnessed and learned while in Guatemala, and also about what it had to do with us and why we should care, this was the principle to which I kept returning. Guatemala today remains a country of profound inequality. Nearly 60% of the country is impoverished, and about a quarter of the population lives on less than $1 a day. About half of all Guatemalan children under the age of five are chronically malnourished. Corruption and impunity are rampant. If you're wealthy and well-connected, you possess political or economic power or enjoy proximity to the powerful. You benefit from legal and extra-legal privileges unimaginable to the poor and weak majority, in particular, the large indigenous population among whom these inequalities are even more pronounced. It seemed to me that much of this social inequality could be traced back to Guatemala's original sin, namely the conquest and plunder of the native Mayans by the Spanish during the colonial period. There seemed to be a direct line between centuries of, between centuries of colonization and exploitation to the wholesale slaughter of native communities during the internal armed conflict period, to the discrimination, poverty, and oppression that is rampant today. That the legacy of considering some Guatemalan lives as more valuable than others keeps a select few wealthy and powerful while preventing the majority of the population from rising. It's why, for example, whole communities of poor native Guatemalans some of whom we met with on my trip, can have their lands confiscated by the state with no just cause or fair compensation and be forced to live in makeshift villages in the wilderness with inadequate access to food, water, and health care while fighting years-long battles in the courts that they are likely to lose. It's why human rights activists and journalists, some of whom we met with on my trip, are routinely threatened, harassed, imprisoned, and even murdered or disappeared with impunity by the same people they are pro protesting or trying to expose as corrupt or criminal. And it's why 250,000 people were systematically murdered, and why 45,000 people like young Marco Antonio were disappeared during the conflict years, and why very few among the guilty have been prosecuted for their crimes. This is what a society looks like when the lives of some 
are considered more valuable than the lives of others. Meanwhile, I was troubled as I heard in all of that echoes of our own country's history and present realities. Our country, too, was built upon the plunder of native lands and peoples and upon the exploitation and brutalization of enslaved Africans. Our history replete with legally ordained inequality and judicially enforced discrimination. One can draw a straight line from those injustices to the facts that today roughly one in five American children live in poverty. More than two million Americans are incarcerated. More people, both per capita and in total, than any other country in the world. We have a greater rate of income inequality than any other democracy in the developed world. A self-reinforcing chasm between rich and poor that has been widening for over 40 years. And every single one of those inequities, and still others, disproportionately impact Americans of color. Meanwhile, while we were in Guatemala, the government shutdown dragged on. Hundreds of thousands of lower-class government workers had been furloughed for weeks without pay over a demand leveled by and for the benefit of some of the nation's wealthiest and most powerful individuals that we treat some people, namely asylum seekers and migrants from Central America, as less deserving of dignity and opportunity as others. Indeed, the immigration issue is a perfect illustration of how today we treat some lives as inferior to others. What, after all, was happening at the border this summer, if not the forced disappearance of hundreds of migrant children, some of whom died in our custody? It was painful to consider whether my own society's injustices were differences of degree rather than kind, that even in America, in practice, if not in theory, some people's lives matter more than others. What will become of us, I wonder, if we stay on this path? If we believe, as our tradition insists, that all lives have intrinsic and equal value, then we yet have considerable work to do at home. And if we accept this core principle of justice from our tradition then the inequities in a faraway place like Guatemala must also be a Jewish concern. As Jews, we should care about a foreign government disappearing a child before his parents' eyes. Because if all lives have equal value, no parent anywhere deserves to fear such a horror any more than you or I. If all lives are equally precious, then the systematic murder of an entire population should matter to us whether it is happening in my backyard or to my own people or halfway around the world as it did to the Mayan people during Guatemala's conflict and is currently happening to the Rohingya people in Burma. As people who purport to serve a God of all humanity, as people who believe that we all descend from the same human parent and were created equally by the same God, we should care that there are places in the world where the privileged few enjoy extravagant wealth, while millions of their neighbors' children are chronically malnourished. This biblical principle, that all people have equal worth, is universal. It transcends borders and applies across national, ethnic, and religious divides. It calls us to attention and to action at home, in Central America, and indeed everywhere. 
As one of my colleagues, Rabbi Eric Solomon from Raleigh, said in our meeting with the American Charged Affairs in Guatemala, while each of us may serve a particular congregation in a particular place, the Torah teaches that all of humanity is our constituency. As Jews, as servants of a God who we believe is the source of all life, as a people charged to be a blessing so that all the families of the earth will be blessed through us. All humanity is our constituency. And at the heart of our work is the moral message that is both articulated by the creation and exodus and importantly crystallized in law by this week's Torah portion. All lives have equal value. As religious law, as, found, as the foundation of the Torah's vision, for the ideal social order, our parasha this week commands us not just to cherish, but also to build, to build a society, and ultimately a world that enshrines and ensures the equal worth of every human being. May we, each of us, commit to embracing that value. May we, each of us, commit to